Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Jake Meter with some thoughts on staying sane in this election year. And if it's an appropriate venue, just ask, like, what are you reading that led you to that conclusion? Could you share with me some of the things that influenced you to take up this view? And that tells them that you're interested in them, that you're willing to listen to another viewpoint. It doesn't oblige you to agree. It doesn't endorsed what they're saying. It's a way of trying to maintain fellowship and honor your Christian brother or sister. Jake Meter next. As we enter yet another election year, and with the memory of the contentiousness of past elections, Jake Meter has written notes on staying sane in an election year. He hopes it'll be a help to churches and individual believers to perhaps model a better way of navigating what is sure to be another challenging season. Jake is editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy. Jake, tell us a little bit about your recollections of past presidential campaigns. Were they also contentious? Yeah, so the first presidential election I remember, like, being fairly aware of, I kind of remember Bush Gore. I remember um, Bush Carey better. Yeah. And then the first that I was able to vote in was um, Obama McCain. And so for my whole life, every four years, we go through these really tense, nasty campaigns that inevitably are referred to as the most important in our lifetimes. And there's not any like memory of what we were saying four years ago. Um, yeah. And so the initial concern that I had as I was sitting down to write was really driven by a lot of conversations I'm having with pastors and other ministry leaders where all of them are just like last fall, they were already dreading 2024, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I was just talking to a pastor friend recently and I mean, I, I, for lots of reasons, I can have very idealistic ideas about what Christian community should look like. And I was talking to this pastor friend, and he was like, you need to understand, I'm trying to get people who go to the same church to be nice to each other. Like, you're talking about all these layers on top of that, and I'm going for, like, (laughs) they can be in the same room together without getting into an argument or feeling enormously uncomfortable. Just, I mean, very basic kind of Christian virtue stuff. And yet, because of the very large role that politics really do play in shaping what our lives are like and because of the way media discourse kind of amplifies what's going on politically. Um, There are lots of people who, I mean, like I'm PCA, so we actually take membership vows when we join a church. Um, Presbyterian Church in America. Yeah, yeah, the Tim Keller's denomination that he was part of. we take membership vows when we join a church to like pursue the purity and peace of the church to build up one another in Christian love. And if it's hard for us to actually even be in the same room without getting into an argument, we can't actually fulfill those vows that we took, which is a pretty big deal. So I was trying to write about the issue in a way that recognized the real stakes that there really are important things going on in an election 
while also trying to, in some ways, put the election into a broader context of Christian living and Christian virtue and how we relate to one another in the church and to people outside the church. These notes, uh, your your piece is notes on staying sane in an election year. You've actually got five broad notes and then a lot of sort of subsets underneath of that. And I'd like to just run through it and it kind of bounce it off of you and 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 uh, get you get your thoughts on it. Well, the first the first note, uh, Jake, in in your piece is remember that politics matter. That's the first one. Why is it, why do you need to kind of lay that down? Because I think what can be the response for some people who get really burned out on election coverage, really burned out on politics, is they just they personally disengage. And they also make what I think are some missteps theologically or in how they read the Bible to kind of justify their disengagement um, that I think actually hinders their own thinking about Christianity and common life and also really minimizes what is going on in an election. You know, there's I, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but you take something like the Dobbs ruling that really does make a difference in quite literally in saving the lives of hundreds of thousands of infant of unborn infants mm-hmm. over time. Um, or another example that I've used before, my dad was um, had a traumatic brain injury about eight and a half years ago, eight years ago. It's complicated, but basically if my mom hadn't been able to get insurance insurance for herself as a full-time caregiver through the marketplace established by Obamacare, it's probable that they would have been spending far more than they did, and I don't know that they would have been able to keep their house. And so these kind of political issues, whether it's something like Dobbs or Obamacare, I mentioned PEPFAR in the essay, the program that George W. Bush established to address the AIDS crisis in Africa. Um, These are public policies. These are political acts undertaken by the state that have enormous consequences on the lives of hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. And so I think when we, if we disengage out of a sense of frustration, disillusionment, whatever it might be, um, we're taking ourselves out of a significant arena that shapes public life um, and can, even amidst all the, craziness can still accomplish very good things. So you're saying that really our participation in the political process under your note here that remember that politics matters uh, is in a sense you see it as sort of a stewardship aimed at love of neighbor, if you will. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Um, There are all kinds of ways in which the shape of day-to-day kind of cultural life within a society will influence you and influence the people around you. And one of the ways we shape that is through political processes. And so it's indirect and your individual effect is not enormous, particularly when we're talking about voting, which we'll get to later. Um, And yet I still think it is an opportunity to think about, I mean, even just in your own thinking, to try and develop an idea of what does a society that is good for my neighbor, good for my family, good for the people around me, what does that look like? 
how does my stewardship of my even small level of agency, how, how can I use that agency to make things better? And so the first point is really just intended to try and preserve a space for people to say, yes, it's crazy. Yes, it's divisive. Yes, there's lots of problems, but don't unplug or disconnect completely because there still is something real here that is significant. And, and you reference uh, Romans 13, Romans chapter 13, and the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments as applicable. Yes, yeah. The the fifth commandment to honor father and mother um, traditionally has been read, at least in my Reformed tradition, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see it elsewhere, it's been read not only as resp- as honoring mother and father, but as honoring those who God has placed in authority over you. So that would include mother and father, obviously, but not be limited to mother and father. And so you can find like John Calvin talking about the broader applications of the fifth commandment, including being having a certain regard and respect for governing authorities. And of course, Paul then, you get that much more directly from Paul in Romans 13. And the thing I try to remind people of when we talk about this is it's like, whatever you might think of your mayor or governor or the president, Paul wrote Romans 13 when Nero was emperor. Mm. Not a lot of folks worse than him. And even then, Paul says there is something in this governing office that God has ordained that commands respect and honor, even when it's Nero holding that office. Mm. And so I think that, if nothing else, it should inform the way that we talk about our elected leaders. And you can disagree with them, and you can think their personal lives are a disaster, and you can think they're corrupt, like whatever it might be. And you might even be right. Um, And you might even say, due to these problems, there's these actions that might be appropriate within our democracy to address these issues. But there's still no point where I think okay, now you get to dehumanize this person, you get to belittle them, you get to insult them. Um, the fifth commandment still holds. Well, the piece so. is note, notes on staying sane in an election year. My guest is uh, the writer of it, uh, Jake Meter. He is editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy. And note number two here, uh, Jake, in your piece is politics are complex. In a nutshell, what are you, what are you saying here? What are you trying to uh, sensitize us to? I think something that happens in an election year a lot is who you vote for or what political party you're registered with becomes a test of your reliability or even of your orthodoxy as a Christian. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to say in that part is, well, voting, now just narrowly voting, is there's any number of reasons you might vote for any number of candidates. Um, and party affiliation also has layers of complexity to it. I remember it was maybe two years ago, a number of leaders kind of connected to the Gospel Coalition Young Reform Network were getting attacked on social media because they were registered Democrats. Mm. But they actually lived in cities where basically the Democratic primary was the general election because of what a firm hold the Democrats had on local government. And so if they registered as a Republican, basically they had no say 
in local government. By registering as a Democrat, they got a vote in the primary. A similar thing applies, I'm in Nebraska in a deep red state. You know, if you want to have any real say over who the governor is going to be, well, that is basically decided in the Republican primary. We haven't elected a Democrat governor in a long time, and there's not really any reason to think we're going to anytime soon. So I, I think it's an error to condemn someone purely for the act of voting for a certain person, in most cases, um, or being registered in a certain party. Now, there might be cases where, like, I, we shouldn't lie about a candidate. We shouldn't give loud, enthusiastic support to somebody who's not a great choice. But when you step in the ballot box, you might say to yourself, it's this person or this person. All things considered, I think this is the better choice, not because I think he's perfect or there aren't problems. But and so what I'm really trying to do, going back to what I was saying before, Mm -hmm. like it should be possible for Christians who vote for Democrats and Christians who vote for Republicans speaking narrowly about voting right now to be in a congregation together. Um, It shouldn't affect our fellowship. Right. That is increasingly not the case. I mean, I know in just our circles here in Lincoln, um, 15 years ago, we had churches that were more politically diverse. This is just in my denomination. We had one church that was actually mostly pro-life Democrat types and one church that was kind of culture war, homeschool Republican types. And we were all in the same denomination good relationships. We have a unity service every year for all the churches in the denomination to worship together. Um, We still do that, but it is more complicated than it used to be. Any thoughts on um, conversing with uh, a fellow believer who does have maybe very divergent political views, and, and maybe you even go out of your way to not bring them up? And, and when you go to church, and somehow they get brought up, or they bring it up, and the next thing you know, here you are, you're in a conversation you didn't even seek. So much of it's going to depend on the person and the context when it's coming up. Sometimes somebody's just kind of spoiling for a fight, and they're trying to trigger you. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, I think you kind of respectfully decline to engage and don't give them what they're wanting. <laughs> um there are also cases, though, like I remember a couple of years ago amidst all the COVID stuff, um, a friend from church kind of casually, not trying to, like, upset me or, like, provoke anything, just casually mentioned this thing he had read and that he kind of agreed with it. And I remember kind of catching myself and being really shocked and then having to stop and be like, okay... This person is not an avatar on social media. They're not a talking head on cable news. They're not this dehumanized thing. This is your Christian brother who you've been in church with for five years. You've been members in the same church for, I think, at least five years at that point. Mm -hmm. You have taken vows to relate to him in a certain way. And so slow down. Don't let yourself get triggered by what happened, by what he said. And if, it's an appropriate venue. Just ask, like, what are you reading that led you to that conclusion? Could you share with me some of the things that influenced you to take up this view? And that tells them that you're interested in them, that you're willing to listen to another viewpoint. Um, 
it doesn't oblige you to agree. It doesn't endorse what they're saying. It's a way of trying to maintain fellowship and honor your Christian brother or sister um, while actually maybe still having disagreements at the end. Um, one of the most satisfying mm -hmm. bits of feedback I ever heard about anything we did at Miro, it was funny. We ran a piece by a pastor whose church was not complying with mask mandates in their city. Now, like, my church did comply with a mask mandate. We advocated within our church to comply with the mask mandate, like me personally and my wife. But I thought this pastor explained his argument well. He explained why they did what they did. And so we ran the piece. And in the same day, I had one contributor get really mad and say he wasn't going to write for us again because of the piece. But then I had two or three p emails come in from people saying, I don't agree with that but I understand better why he thinks what he thinks. And, you know, this was, I think we ran it in the fall. And so people were getting ready to go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And one of the readers in particular said, I've kind of been dreading going home for Thanksgiving and having awkward family conversations with family members about this. But after reading that piece, I feel like I'm better able to do that. Well, Jake Meter, Editor-in-Chief of Mere Orthodoxy, is our guest today on His People, and uh, we're talking about a piece that he wrote recently, Notes on Staying Sane in an Election Year. He's got five main notes, and note three, Jake, is remember that most politics are local and not electoral or national. Yeah, I mean, if you break down the time I'm actually going to spend engaged in voting in a national election this year. It will be about five minutes to drive to our precinct, a little longer if we walk, wait in line for a little bit, vote. Like, it won't top 45 minutes, probably. Mm -hmm. Very small part of my year. And when you factor in that I do live in a red state, like, for all, like, electoral college purposes, my presidential vote does not matter just the way it is yeah um you can like it or not like it but that's the way the system works and so it would be kind of silly for me to torch a bunch of relationships create tons of tension and friction with people i'm called to love over something that i'm going to spend 45 minutes doing that arguably doesn't even have any effect a lot of what we do that is political a lot of Christians historically have said politics is about how do we structure our social relationships so that they're delightful and mutually beneficial. Well, there's all kinds of ways we do that that have very little to do with voting mm -hmm. or the mechanisms of government. And so I tell the story in there of a, a pastor friend who he, he took over for a pastor who was a very, we're going to take that hill for Jesus type. And that's not how my friend is at all. And it was a kind of a struggle for the congregation to adjust. Um, and finally, one day, a, a congregant was asking him, well, how are we going to help deal with poverty in our city? And my friend in his head is like, look, we're a church of 100 in a metro area of several million. Like, let's be realistic here. <laughs> um but he, he kind of asked her what she had in mind and what she meant, and he listened, and he, then he was like, well, 
Are you hosting people with less money than you in your home for dinner sometimes? Mm-hmm. Are you in relationship with the poor? Because you're not going to have an enormous effect on housing policy in our city or on tax policy in our country. But you can create a space that is hospitable and welcoming to people who have fewer mean less means than you do and in creating that kind of space you can model a way of life where we're drawn together by christ or drawn toward one another by christ even amidst significant differences and so is that a big thing that's going to get written up on line or covered on news no but it can actually be quite transformative in small good ways. And when we get very fixated on electoral politics and especially national politics, we kind of lose the ability over time to see those things, I think, that we can do um, that aren't electoral politics but are significant politically if by politics we just mean how do we structure our social life among our neighbors. Well, note number four, and it seems like this one might be maybe the core of your piece, perhaps. Remember that politics are not mm. ultimate. Yeah, a, a friend of mine loves to tell the story. Now, I've, I've seen it said as it's, it's World War One, it's World War II, so yeah. it's one of those stories that might be a little too good to be true, but it's a great <laughs> illustration of a, a church in Europe during one of the wars that gets hit by some kind of bomb or shrapnel or something during public worship. And in the story, the congregation just keeps on singing the hymn they're singing without really missing a beat. And he loves that story as an illustration of one element of what the church's posture toward the world should be. Not not that the church is indifferent, but that the church is so fixated on the worship of God and being the kind of people together that we need to be that even a bomb doesn't disrupt what you're doing and there's a couple other examples i gave in that section of the piece as well um i i think what can happen is again especially in election years there's all kinds of incentive incentives and pressure to kind of get into these like back-to-back, we're in it together, relationships with people who share your politics. And what ends up happening is over time, sometimes slowly, sometimes more quickly, depending on your situation, you can find yourself locked arm in arm with people who profess and believe all kinds of horrifying things, Christianly speaking, and feeling as if you have more in common with them than you do your Christian brother or sister, who for their like 30 minutes they spend on this thing in November, check a different box than you do. Now, if there's deeper divides that those politics surface, then maybe there is more to be said there but i think we need to remember that uh, again we're called into community by christ we are called into 
fellowships of believers that have always been relatively diverse in church history. I mean, you can even go back to the apostles and imagine the interactions between Matthew, the tax collector, and um, Simon, the zealot. And the, and the disciples, I'm sure they had some interesting conversations as they were with Jesus. Sure. So it's always been a thing in Christian community that we have these kind of disagreements. And Jesus seems to see those disagreements as an occasion for us to learn to love one another. Um, not as an occasion for us to divide and speak badly of each other or falsely of each other. Well, Jake Meter, my guest, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Mere Orthodoxy, notes on staying sane in an election year. We're talking about that piece. And finally, we come to number five, uh, Jake, note number five, remember to devote yourselves to the scriptures, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And why, uh, as believers, do we need this reminder in this context? So the Sunday I was baptized, I um, ended up getting baptized in the Presbyterian church I started attending in college because I'd never been baptized as a kid um, or even as a young adult in the church I'd grown up in. And it was so striking on that Sunday we had, so the pastor of our church at the time was a Taiwanese American, second generation Taiwanese immigrant, parents came over. Um, The associate was a white dude who grew up in the exact same neighborhood I did in Northeast Lincoln. Um, and then the pastor who happened to be preaching that Sunday was a Haitian pastor Hmm. who our church had partnered with a while back, um, to do ministry in Haiti. And it was such a striking thing to like, so you go to the front and you kneel because we sprinkle in Presbyterian church. So I'm kneeling to be baptized as they sprinkle me with the water and I've got Taiwanese pastor, Caucasian white pastor, Haitian pastor in the front row getting ready to preach, um, all united around this act that's marking me as belonging to Christ. And then we hear this sermon in this kind of thick accent that was hard to follow at times. (laughs) We sing these old hymns after the service, mostly written by old English guys from 300 years ago. The body of Christ is a global body. It is a body that is more diverse than a lot of our communities are these days. Um, And so if your experience of church is just something you stream online and you don't go regularly... If your experience of Christian community is just we bump into each other at church events, but we don't talk much outside of that, um, you're kind of creating buffers between yourself and the realities of who God's people really are. And so when you actually spend time amongst God's people in church, um, You know, you're going forward to receive communion and you're standing next to somebody that you don't really like all that much. And yet you're going forward because you need Jesus and they're right next to you because they know that they need Jesus, too. That's really powerful. I I joke. I've got a couple friends that write for the magazine sometimes from the UK. And then there's an Australian pastor whose podcast I listen to. And I kind of think of those folks as my sanity check sometimes. Um because they're outside the American context. And so it's kind of like if you bring 
like your girlfriend comes home for Thanksgiving and sees the family dynamics and you kind of see it in a new way because you're seeing it through her eyes. And it's like, oh, all this stuff that I thought was normal is actually super weird. And I had no idea until I brought a stranger in. Talking to Christians from outside the U.S. or talking to Christians in your church from a different background than you can have a similar kind of effect because there's these things that we're kind of socially conditioned to just see as normal. And then you, one of my good friends has a Cameroonian living with him right now, who's a Christian and actually fled the country because of some persecution concerns. And yet he finds American politics and Christian, like the way Christians think about politics are just inscrutable to him. And I mean, he would probably be theologically to my right and yet he's not a Republican. He's not right-wing politically. Um, and so when you allow yourself to experience these ways that God's community is not like other communities, um, just those experiences, those conversations, um, they're good reminders to kind of carry around with you as you go about your life. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Jake Meter, editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy. We've been talking about his piece, Notes on Staying Sane in an Election Year. You can read it at mereorthodoxy.com. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright on preparing to meet Jesus, either when he returns or when we die and go to be with him. I shouldn't be here except that God allowed me to live and, and to bring this message really because we could meet him today. You know, we could die. We're not promised tomorrow. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening. <laughs>